The transition to a digital currency is heating up, and I get to do one of my favorite things today, which is show you how that happens. All that and so much more coming up. I'm Lynette Zhang, Chief Market Analyst here at ITM Trading, a full-service, physical gold and silver dealer. And today, you know, if you don't hold it, you don't own it, I'm going to show you why that is so important. Because hiding in, same, in plain sight is the currency transition, and it is heating up. Now, interestingly enough, Sweden, who has the oldest central bank, was the first to go to negative rates in 2009 and also is almost virtually cashless. So they came out with their, or they've been working on coming, I should say, with the e-corona, the first CBDC. And they just did a study and they're saying that they need to do this because, hey, when cash goes away, well, these central bank digital currencies can come in and fill that place and be an awesome thing. But the task is huge. And the world's oldest, they keep pushing back the timeline. So originally they thought they would have this out and up and running and everything by 2018. Now, after this study, they're actually saying, well, maybe next year, but we could take up until 2026 to issue it. So there are clearly, it's harder than everybody thought, especially if you take the time to do the studies to see the possible, probable different impacts that it might have on the population and the currencies. Not all countries are concerned about that. I'm going to come to that in a second. Because frankly, it's China who's now in the lead, even though Sweden started first. And we've been talking about this and the fact that China is issuing and has been running a major test on its own CBDC. Now here's their C, oops, I forgot to grab my little laser pointer. So here's their CBDC. I just want you to look at that on they're on the phone. So when somebody goes to spend it, that's what it looks like. But Beijing is positioning the digital yuan for international use and designing it to be untethered to the global financial system where the U.S. dollar has been king since World War II. And frankly, we've been watching the transition and the battle between the East and the West so between China and the U.S. for a number of years. This is where, frankly, they're way ahead of the U.S. Of course, they may not have as many considerations, considering that they're a totalitarian government. They could do anything they want and a full surveillance economy. So we know that this is another tool for them to track and control. But they're citizens. But it is also a tool to position their yuan, also known as the renminbi for, you, you, for those of you that hear it both ways, as a true international currency, which they've been trying to do uh, 
to a certain level of success. I mean, they are part of the SDR basket, special drawing rights, the IMF's currency. But not as quickly or successfully as they would like. Now, here's where I find it really interesting. Maybe you do too. So this is the paper you want. Uh, looks pretty similar to the digital you want. Remember, when you want to make a transition, you want things to seem as normal as possible. So going digital has been in the works really since the 50s, since they first introduced the credit cards to the population. So, you know, we've been moving in this direction. But I want to show you what it looked like in the U.S. because I haven't done this in a really, really long time and I think I have some new viewers and it could make sense to review it because we've already heard talk of the digital dollar, even though our Federal Reserve is not yet ready to issue it. And what you're looking at here is a gold certificate. So you could convert this into gold. And just like Sweden said, they're not taking away cash. And China's actually also saying they're not taking away cash. Those are just really temporary windows they will end up taking away cash because especially, well, no, all central banks and governments want more direct control over what happens in the economy. This 18-month lag time, who needs that? Gosh. Okay. So here is a gold back. So this was still, the dollar was still partially backed. But, you know, you can see how similar the two of these look. Right? You want to keep it as close to what people are used to as possible. And here's the 1974 $20 bill, which looks an awful lot like the 1934 gold back versus debt back. So once we hit 1971, we were on the paper standard. But my point being is that they want to keep it as close to normal as possible because they absolutely know, meaning central bankers, governments, that's the they that I'm referring to, uh, that, that they want to make these transitions with your cooperation. So they have to keep it as close to normal, what you're used to as possible. Hence, when we do get the CBDC here in the US, what are they calling it? The digital dollar. They marry people, marry the legal money of the state. I mean, I can tell you, I was around in July of 1971 and in September of 1971, and I didn't realize what had changed. They don't want you to realize it. So they try and keep it as close to normal as possible. Now, we talked a little bit about the SDRs. SDRs, for those that are new, please forgive me if I'm being redundant, but the SDR stands for Special Drawing Rights. It's the currency of the IMF. It is composed of a basket of currencies. It was created in 1969 to take over as the world reserve currency from the U.S. dollar. But when Kissinger went to Saudi Arabia and created the petrodollar, that did not need to happen. And so it kind of just went to sleep. They didn't break down any of the mechanisms or any of the tools that they had created. They just weren't utilizing them 
until 2009. That's when all of that changed. And you can see here, this is both of these are from 2009. At that point, they tested all the systems, mechanisms, tweaked what they needed to do, created the substitution fund that would enable anybody that's holding dollar assets or dollar instruments like bonds, let's say, to make a deposit into the substitution fund and then the IMF could wash it and convert it, boom, into um, SDR denominated instruments or assets. That would then give the SDR an even bigger global reach than it has right now because it has been used in the system for a long time. Go to USPS, the US Postal Service, and in the search bar, put SDR and you're gonna see, but they've, it's been used, it's been used since it was created in 69. So they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. They merely had to wake that wheel up and tweak it to accommodate a bigger mission. I cannot personally tell you that this is absolutely going to be the new world reserve currency, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me that it would because where that basket right now is composed of like six different currencies, including the yuan and the dollar and the euro and the corona and, uh, uh, and, the, and uh, the British pound, et cetera, they can expand the number of currencies that are in there to include, frankly, every country. So to make it to be universal currency. I will say in here though, as well, that they have indeed uh, discussed putting a component of gold back in the SDR. It was originally gold in the SDR, but they took that out when the US went off the gold standard. So they have indeed talked about putting a component of gold in the SDR, which they would need to do to gather confidence and trust in that currency and get the public, general public, to use it again. Oh, look, can I guarantee this? Of course I can't guarantee this, but that is what's happened 100% of the time because once the public is battered and beaten and bloodied and bruised enough, they don't trust the powers that be. They don't trust these central bankers. And, and trust, this is a con game. Confidence and trust is everything. And gold it is what has historically had the trust. And people may say cryptos, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but that has not yet been tested. So moving forward, the G7, had talked about boosting those IMF reserves, and that was in in you know the middle of March, pretty much at the same time that the IMF was talking about doing just that. Now, in this valuation, you have roughly not even 250 billion SDRs. They're talking about boosting it by 650 billion. Now, what I want to point out. When you're hearing how great the economy is and how quickly it is growing, it is growing on mountains of debt. Nothing grows all the way to the sky. There is a day of reckoning that is, we are fast approaching and I can't tell you it's gonna be Tuesday morning at 8.35, but make no mistake about it. All they can do is everything that they've already done. 
debt, 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 and more debt and leverage. So they're talking about boosting the SDR globally. That means that they do create this out of thin air. They do not create it from debt. And then they give it to all of their member nations. Okay. So here you go. Here is a concert currency that is, that is created truly out of thin air. And of course, when it is, then all the, those other currencies that are part of that basket, they have to buy those currencies and that strengthens or makes it appear. It's really more of an appearance than a reality, clearly. Uh, but that would be supportive of those different currencies that are inside of this SDR basket. Because what they're really talking about doing is more than tripling the allocation. Then you can go out, countries can go out and shop with it. They can go out and buy stuff with it, you know? And by the way, this is kind of an aside, but you know, members of the IMF, they don't pay taxes anywhere and they're not subject to any laws of any country. It's a great job. I should have applied. Not really, because I wouldn't have fit in very well there. But, you know, what can I tell you? Sometimes that's the way these things happen. Okay. Something else that is critically important in all of this whole piece where we're talking about debt and money. This is Italy's debt to GDP going back to the mid 80s, okay, as we were starting this experiment. And this is last year's, right? So the debt is exploding. Who is buying that debt? 155.6%. Doesn't matter. Debt doesn't matter, really? Well, maybe that's your opinion, but that is not my opinion. And that, that is not what history shows us over and over again. Italian and French banks revive the doom loop fears with bond buying because somebody, and, and we're doing the same thing. I mean, I love how fingers get pointed, but nobody ever seems to look in the mirror. The Federal Reserve has been buying U.S. government debt since I believe it was December 18th of 2002. I know it was 2002. I might be, and I know it was December. Maybe it was the 23rd, but <laughs> we're like right in there. But hey, France and Italy is doing that. Now, why would they have to? because there are not enough buyers of the debt. And that creates a doom loop, right? In this particular case, what they are referring to is the government loaning the banks money to buy the government bonds so that the government can continue to spend. There's that doom loop. But I didn't put it in this one, but I've shown you many times and the Bank of Canada does a study, an annual study now on government bond defaults, sovereign debt defaults. And in advanced economies, like the euro is an advanced economy, or the eurozone is an advanced economy, um, you know, really, this is what third world countries used to do. So now you have all of this debt, and the more debt that the government issues, the less value that it all has, but they give them the money so it just keeps going and going. When this time bomb explodes, it's taking everybody and everything with it. 
So Banca Italia d'Italia said the share of the country's government bonds owned by foreign investors dropped the first six months of last year from 25.9% to 23.6%. Uh-oh. Fewer buyers mean that the banks have to step up to the plate and be buying. Italian banks are by far the largest source of finance for the Italian government. I, my guess is because they can they can hide things this way or that way, but my guess is is that would be true in many 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 places, including the U.S. Even though that's not what they make it look like, but since Italy does not control its own money supply, right? It doesn't have the lira anymore. She cannot print money to meet these debts, nor can she devalue her currency to boost her economy, right? So that's the currency wars. If my currency gets cheaper against your currency, then it means that my products are better priced in your country. So therefore, more people will buy those imported products. So we've been dealing with that for, for many years, the currency wars, but who really pays the price in the end? I have to say it's always the public that does it. In this particular case, where, you're, where you've got, and not just in Italy and France, but I'm really referring more to the doom loop, where the central banks are buying government debt because there's not enough buyers of it, and therefore they have more debt to service, which then makes it harder for them to stimulate the economy, and so they take on more debt and they sell it to the bank. See how it just goes around? Everybody is doing this, and it will be the public that ends up paying the price. Those that stay in those fiat money products and are not truly diversified and are not truly protected. And you really need to keep that in mind. And I wanted to bring this full service or full circle back to the IMF and my favorite, favorite piece that they've done to date, 2015's Breaking Below the Lower Zero Bound. Let's make sure that we have that link in there, Edgar, please. Because right in the beginning, they lay it out. And whether you think, oh, that was 2015, this is 2020, 21. These things take time. They take time. And, and how convenient the digital adoption, how convenient many things have happened. Much as, much as during the Great Depression, when countries were able to revive their economies by going off the gold standard, which now officially there's three cents left out of the original dollars worth of purchasing power. Woohoo! That's really reviving the economy, isn't it? Is it reviving your economy? This is the stuff that just really ticks me off so much. All that is needed to empower monetary policy, central banks, to cut interest rates as much as needed for economic stimulation, in other words, getting you to spend money, let's see, is now is to change from a paper standard 
to an electronic money standard and be willing to have paper currency go away from par. In other words, the face value of that bill may be $20, but by the time you spend it, maybe you only are getting three cents worth of purchasing power. I mean, frankly, that's what's, that's really what's been happening. But this would be obvious. It's not, I'm sorry, not the purchasing power. It's actually the principle that you end up with out of that $20 bill. When you go to use it, maybe you only end up with $16. And not because, so you got a double whammy because you got the loss of purchasing power no matter what. But now, because there's virtually no purchasing power left, they have to attack principal. That's what negative rates are about. And if you were looking at your bank account and you saw your principal decline and you knew you were not spending that money, what are you likely to do? You are likely to go out and shop and try to find anything, anything, that will hold its value better than the currency. So let's see, how could we get, how could the central banks get us used to that? Well, let's see, we've got huge adoption and we know there's been a big push since Bitcoin came out in 2009. In, that was in January and in March is when the central banks started uh, quantitative easing. But now with all of this free stimulus money, extra unemployment business benefits, the extra checks that are going into all of these households, Robin has 9.5 million users trading crypto. Now, does that really seem like a safe store for you? You really want day traders trading your money, what you're working for, but it is getting adoption. It is getting people used to it. It is getting the world comfortable with it. The end of February, here we are, a uh, little bit more than a month, it jumped from 6 million users or traders of cryptos to 9.5, almost, well, not really doubling, but another 50% more or so, more than that. Yep, that's how you get that adoption. It's how you do it. You get things, you make it, you normalize it, you keep everything as close to normal as possible. How do you catch a wild boar, right? You put out some food in the field. You don't touch it, the boar come, eats it, and then after about a week or so of that, you put up a fence, one side of a fence. Well, the wild boar stays away for a minute because it's something different, they're not comfortable with it. But if you keep putting that food out there and you don't do anything with that one-sided fence, they start to come back and eat. Once they're comfortable with that, you put the next side of the fence up. And again, they stay away because there's something that has changed. They're not comfortable with it, but you keep putting the food out. They come and eat. You put up that third side, same thing. And then when they're comfortable with all three sides and they're in there eating that food, that free flipping food, bam, you put that fourth side down and you have captured wild hogs.
don't be a wild hog. I mean, seriously, don't be a wild hog. Because there is one form of real money that has been proven through time to hold its value and then some. And so many people talk to me and they're, they're just about the weight of the metal. And in some cases, that's really all you want, like for property taxes or medical conditions and things like that. That's really the kind of thing that you want, but you want to do it in the way that is most likely to be able to survive this mess. I got a question the other day about, well, somebody had said that, well, all they'd have to do is tax the gold at 90% and then they wouldn't have to confiscate. But this particular coin is a $5 gold coin. So roughly a quarter of an ounce, roughly. And it sold for $8.4 million. Let's see, who do you think can afford $8.4 million for a quarter of an ounce of gold? Probably somebody really wealthy. Probably somebody that either writes the laws or has the ability to influence those that write the laws. So maybe they would do that with monetary gold because monetary gold is 98% of all the gold that's above ground. So that's new stuff. But with this old stuff, do you really think that those that write the laws or those that can afford to spend $8.4 million on even an ounce of gold, they gonna pay 90%? Don't think so. So a big reason, you know, aside from growing up and watching my uncle Al, who was able to accumulate legally thousands of ounces of gold when nobody could hold more than five, right? But he did it the legal way. And understanding how the wealthy set these rules for themselves, what do you think? Because if you don't think that cryptocurrencies are a threat, to the US dollar and to these sovereign currencies, the Chinese Yuan, et cetera, think again, they're not gonna let it just happen. It'll be a small part. I'm not saying they're going away, but they're not going to let, they're not gonna give up their money monopoly. And if you're working with people, if you're in the same category, you don't have to spend $8.4 million on a gold coin, but you wanna be, I wanna be, you do whatever you want. I want to be in the same category as the person that bought this coin. Because if I am, I have a much better shot of holding on to my wealth and having the ability to utilize it as we continue through this transition and through this reset of the economy, the financial system, and the monetary system. That's what I want. Absolutely. This is what's proven. That's where I'm comfortable. Whatever else you do, and you have to do what you want to do and what you're comfortable with, no matter what anybody says, including me. You have to do that for yourself. Just 
please make sure that you have a properly diversified and balanced portfolio. If everything you have is intangible, then it's not a balanced portfolio. I don't care if it's cryptocurrencies or it's stocks or bonds or ETFs or REITs or any of that garbage or annuities or, or any of that. Because none of that wealth is hard tangible. Now, real estate is, that's a tangible, hey, I'm inside of real estate right now and looks like I'm finally getting the bug out house that I've been working on for so long. Thanks to Megan in very large part, what a great job she's done. I got to give her some kudos because she worked hard on that. But how liquid is that? Right? Whereas if you have a pro properly diversified, even metals portfolio, you have some pure asset protection. So emergency gold would go into that, you know, emergency silver, but again, it's that price discrepancy. So you can hold a lot more wealth in the same size package with gold as you can with silver. Okay. So you have some that is purely asset protection. You have some that is purely for growth. You have some gold, you have some silver, and you have all the pieces and parts along the way. So that no matter what function you are trying to perform, voila, you have instant liquidity to handle any of it. And again, I cannot stress this too much. You know, people can call me crazy and hey, I'm used to it. <laughs> they call crazy probably pretty much all my life if you want to know the truth. But if I could be like, if I could buy the retirement plan or the healthcare plan that our government has for themselves up at the Senate, or I should say in the Congress, then I would do it. And if it cost me a premium to do it, I'd still do it because it's a much better plan than Social Security and Medicare. That's what this is. This is your monetary best plan because of who's in it. So make sure that for behind the scenes and updates, just go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Lynette Zhang, Twitter at Lynette at ITM trading underscore Zhang. And I think, do you have all of these up on the, all of that? And again, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I actually, some of you, if you've been watching me for a really, 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 really long time, then you know, every once in a while I do a little poetry but I've recently been getting into that more and I'm actually probably going to do some of that on the podcast. I'd like to, I'd like to, it'll, it's fun for me and hopefully it'll be fun for you. Just a little bit of lightness and all of this really nasty stuff. So we're on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, anchor breaker, and even more. Thank you so much. Boy, you know, you know how nice it is when you have these wonderful people around you that do such good work. You met, you know, you met Lindsay yesterday. You'll meet Laura in the future. And of course you hear me talk to Jacqueline and Megan and, you know, I, I, I am such, such a lucky woman to be surrounded by these wonderfully talented people that help me look better than maybe I would look without them, to be perfectly honest with you. So 
That is it for today. It is definitely time to cover your assets. Things are insane out there and nobody's going to know when this music stops, but when it does have your gold physical and silver physical in your possession, no counterparty risk, safest thing that you can do. And until next we meet, please be safe out there. Bye-bye.